0: In a raging storm in the rural town uh, on the coast of Japan, a man and his daughter huddled against a warehouse. They had, they had one another. Um, they had felt the fury of the wind and the snow, and they fought for their lives. In early March, a few years ago, a major snowstorm hit northern Japan in the rural town of Yubetsu, which actually happens to be the sister city of Whitecourt, Alberta, um, I think the connection is valid, uh, for good reason. Um, this town, it's, uh, it, th- in this snowstorm, then, this father, um, Mikio, and his daughter, Natsun, um, they're in desperate straits. They, Mikio, he's driven his truck as far as he can, and he can go no further, and the snow is piled up all around him, and recognizing that the vehicle would be overtaken by snow, he did what he thought best. He and Natsun got out of the truck seeking shelter in a nearby building. He and his daughter made it to a warehouse nearly 1,000 feet away from their truck. They walked with extreme difficulty. No doubt that they were aware he was aware that they had crossed past that line where survival was on the edge of a knife. As the snow continued to raise, they found themselves enveloping in a world of white. In these circumstances, we can imagine without embellishment that this nine-year-old girl would be scared, that she would be crying. And we can imagine without embellishment that her father was scared himself, that he would comfort her. And that is exactly what Makio did. He went to the far reaches of comfort. And he opened his arms and inside this building grabs a hold of his daughter. He, this was a man unknown to the larger world before this storm. He was an ordinary man in a small town, living the lives that many of us know and recognize. He went to work, he puttered on his truck, he drank coffee. On beautiful summer days, he visited um, the Ibetsu glorious Tulip Park um, nearby where he lived. But on that winter day in March, he put his arms around his daughter his life becoming something greater, something visceral and unreal, awful and beautiful all at the same time. He grips her inside of this warehouse and he wraps his arms around her, hunching over her. He's given her his jacket and he's pressed up against her, willing it to contain and preserve her. There's nowhere else for them to run. There's no one for them to call out to. Everything is slipping away in his life. Hunger, sadness, angst, none of this matters. Only the will to continue to protect remains. And at this point in the story, whether you agree with his methods and his choices, you likely do not disagree with his intentions, with his heart. A parent willingly choosing to embrace their precious child to protect them at all costs, to provide for them, to use their wits, their resources, the very limits of their lives for their betterment, to direct all of their power towards their good. The parents that I'm picturing, the parents that I know in my own life, I know would do this. Some have already done things like this. They would do anything for their kids. You would do anything for your child. So, This man shielded his daughter from the elements that sought her death, and he did so until the next day, when authorities found him still hunched over his little girl, shielding her. They attempted to save him, but he died in the hospital. His daughter survived. Despite this tragedy being a story of tragedy, there's also a resounding yes inside of our souls. A resounding yes that our spirits cry out to say, this is the right way for us to live. This is the right way for us to behave, for the way of us to give heroically and sacrificially. And yet, when we're, when we're honest, and when we let statistics kind of drive the story and we observe the world that we live in, the amount of parents abandoning their kids, abdicating their role to others, not demonstrating kindness, gentleness, self-control is staggering. Whatever the reasons, and not just for parents, but for all of us, I can't exclude myself from this question. There is a, depressingly, a depressing reality that people in general will use their time, their talents, their resources, their power for themselves to control, to succeed, to enjoy pleasure, to feel satisfaction. And this is the question that I think is in front of all of us. It's in front of us today. What do you do with your power? Whether you have lots or little, you have some. You have the ability to exert some measure of force into this world. We all have power. What do you do with that measure of influence that you have? What do you do with it? And we hear stories like this of this father and this son all of the time and when we hear it, we think that's what I would do. This is how I would be. This is how I would behave. This is how I would use my power and yet for those of us that are deeply honest, this is not a small question. What do we do with our power? For the past several weeks, we have been in a sermon series called The Verses We Live By and the verse that was selected I think helps us wrestle with this paradox of what do we do with power. Marianne, um, she shares this passage and I would encourage you to watch and to lean in close and listen to the truth of the passage and the questions she raises and the heart behind why this uh, passage means so much to her. Let's watch that now.
1: Hello, um, my name is Marianne Amsar and uh, I have attended this church almost my entire life. And I just wanna share with you today some verses that are very meaningful for me. Um, They're Isaiah 40, verses nine to 11. Hone in on one verse in particular, but I wanted to add a little bit just for context. You know, we're living in really extraordinary times and we therefore need to lean on an extraordinary God. And these verses that I'm sharing with you today are ones that I have highlighted in my Bible uh, many years ago. As with most of you, we all have verses and passages that have deep meaning and importance to us. I love when you read something and have a picture in your mind of what that might look like. And these verses give a powerful, have powerful images for me. Uh, Let me just share them and read and then I'll give a little explanation as to why I chose them. Uh, Isaiah 40 verse nine, you who bring good tidings to Zion go up on the high mountain You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Ah. Just reading that again, it's just so powerful. The key verse for me is verse 11. I added the other two because I wanted to have that picture framed of this all-powerful God who is a great, also a great shepherd. Um, Just seems to be so contrasting. And I have always been fascinated with the paradoxes that we find in scripture. We have this all-powerful eternal creator who is also pictured as a lowly shepherd but not also only a shepherd, he is also the lamb of God. Sometimes it blows my mind thinking about the paradoxes that are intertwined and woven into the great story of Jesus through the whole scripture. But for me, being a parent and reading of his care and attention to my lambs has been a huge source of hope and joy over the many years of being a mom. I absolutely love the image of him carrying them close to his heart. To me, that is so powerful and that he is attentive to us as parents when it says he gently leads those that have young. I have drawn on those images many times over the years, and now with all the challenges we find ourselves in, I encourage you, all of us, to cling to that shepherd who is watching over his lambs. Um, The rest of that chapter goes on to describe the incredible nature of our God, and we can rest assured that he is our hope and security. Thank you, be blessed.
0: Thank you, Marianne, for sharing that passage—a passage that we got to hear little bits of earlier in the service from Pastor Matt as well. A little bit of background for us: um, the Book of Isaiah is centered on the Babylonian exile, and so it began back in uh, 586 BC um, with King Nebuchadnezzar, where he exiled all of the Bab- he exiled all of the Israelites out of Judah. And then they are in Babylon. And then, over a period of about 50 years, they're in full exile. And then, um, when uh, the Persian Empire overtakes the Babylonian Empire, uh, the Persian Empire starts to let some of the people of Judah back into their homeland. So, this is the setting of this book. Now, many scholars. Um, There's there's a bit of a division so scholars divided with regard to the authorship of the book some believe that it's one man wrote the entire book Um, And the beginning half of the book is actually this picture of like forth telling and telling like what's God's gonna do Other scholars believe that the book was actually written by different authors at different points in time Whatever you might believe one thing that everyone agrees with is that chapter 40 begins the new emphasis so chapters 1 to 39 is all of this warning of God's judgment if the people place their trust in secular rulers rather than in God. And then chapters 40 all the way to 55 lifts up the promise of redemption for the people who are experiencing the judgment about what the prophets had warned about in the earlier chapters. And then chapters 56 on to 66 deal with the return of the Jews to Jerusalem and the rebuilding of Jerusalem the city and the temple. And so with all of that in mind, we go to chapter 40, and we hear this voice, the one of crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And then we have this other picture, where it's like, okay, we're preparing the way of the Lord, but well, what does this look like? Like, How do I cry? What do I cry out? And then we look, and we see some of these really interesting statements. Things like, mountains are made low, Right? Um, valleys are raised up, these powerful moments. And then we have this line, all people are like grass. I don't know about you, but when I hear a statement like that, I'm like, really, like, I'm just I'm grass, just like burned up in the field one day. You know, I grow, I like, okay, well, here it is. The grass withers, but the word of the Lord endures forever. You can see this slow growing picture of the power and majesty and authority of this God. There's a scene in Steven, Spielberg, Steven Spielberg's 1993 movie, Schindler's List, that could be considered the thesis of the movie. It's a conversation between Amon, the Nazi commander overseeing the Polish concentration camp, and Oskar Schindler, a German businessman who employs Jews in his factory to keep them out of the camps. They both sit atop Amon's villa, looking over the concentration camp. Amon is drunk, and Schindler is slowly sipping on his drink, and the two men begin to discuss the nature of power. Amon turns to Schindler, and he says, Control is power. That is power. And Schindler asks, Is that why they fear us? Amon laughs, He's like, no, they fear us because we can kill them. Schindler pauses, leans in and says, no, they don't fear us because we have the power to kill. They fear us because we have the power to kill arbitrarily. A man commits a crime, he should know better. We have him killed, we feel pretty good about it. Or we kill him ourselves and we feel even better. That's not power though, that's justice. Schindler goes on to say this, that's different than power. Power is when we have every justification to kill, and we don't. That's what the emperors had. A man stole something. He's brought before the emperor. He throws himself down at the emperor's feet. He begs for mercy. He knows he's going to die. And the emperor pardons him. The emperor chooses that this worthless man, he lets him go. That's power. That's power, Amen. The next morning, Amen, recovering from a hangover, walks through the camp and there are these two scenes where normally this brutal, terrible man would have instantly acted violently and brutally to the mishaps he encountered. He gets back to his home where a Jewish boy has failed to properly clean his bathtub. I don't know, for those of you who have seen the movie, it's a strong moment, a big scene. And we see Ammon reaching down for his gun, but instead lifts his hand and utters the words, I pardon you, now go. As an audience member, you breathe a sigh of relief that just for one moment, This terrible man has exercised his power in a different kind of way. And the boy is walking away, and he's walking through the field. And Ammon turns, and he looks at himself in the mirror. And you can see his heart slowly growing cold and hard again. And he snaps back into his old definition of power where power is fear, power is control, power is reinforcing his need, his craving to have authority, to feel strong. He turns and he shoots the boy in the back. He's back in control. Isaiah 40, verse 10a says this, See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm, now, without context, without context, when you see that, what, what pictures do you come into your mind? What do you picture when you think of he comes with power? What do you see? I see a sword, or I see an arm like Marvel's The Hulk, or Thor holding Stormbreaker, or Thanos, Thanos holding up that Infinity Gauntlet, and he's just like, and half of the world's, half of the universe's life just completely disappears for those of you who don't watch Marvel all of those references they're big strong people that can do big strong things and the half of the universe ceases to exist what do you see what images stories or examples come to mind to have all the power all the power what would you honestly do what do you do with the power that you have This kind of display and use of power, at first glance, feels normal. It feels like this is what we do, this is what we see throughout history. By observation and experience, most of us would agree with Lord Acton, who in 1887 writes a letter to England's bishop, uh, Mendel Crichton, and he writes this, Power tends to corrupt. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad Men. When we observe history, when we look at people in power, we have a tendency to think that's what power is. That's how power gets used. But then Isaiah continues on from verse 10 to verse 11. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers his lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. That same mighty arm, that same mighty strength is a mighty embrace of gentleness. Can you picture the affection, the nurture, the attention, the care of this great God stooping down, holding sheep, lambs, little animals? The paradox... This this is the attribute, this is the nature of God that in verse 9, they are shouting from the rooftops about. This is what defies our human instincts about what power is. A God who is mighty, you know what? We would all expect that. That's just how we would think of when we think of these things. This isn't very different from false gods, that the other nations worship. This isn't different from the gods of our own culture that we worship, gods of success or wealth or fame or fortune. It's not really something to write home about. It's just, okay, that's what we do. But Isaiah does not write home about that. His good news, the good news that I need to hear, the good news that you need to hear, the good news that we need to hear, where we shout it from the rooftops, here is your God. It is the one who has all the might, all the power, all the authority and chooses to tend his flock like a shepherd. Who gathers his lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Isaiah proclaims this paradox, that power and gentleness are not in opposition. In fact, to be truly gentle requires power. In fact, it's, it's impossible to be gentle without power. Gentleness without power is just weakness. A man who has no strength to hold his child cannot hold them gently. He just can't hold them. You, it requires power to act with kindness and gentleness. Power in all of its various forms is in fact a good gift from God, to be used by his people for his good ends, for his kingdom. But like all other good gifts, power is dangerous when used improperly. The problem of power is in its use and in the user. It is a tool that requires redemption. And for myself, when I think about what it means for us to walk and be the church, I am not interested in a generation of Christians who abdicate their power or do not seek it out for fear of the abuse of power. I'm interested in those who will use their power, their resources, their strengths within Christ to use their power with and for Christ, for God's kingdom to come. Our God is not like other gods. He is mighty and gentle. His mighty power is gentle power. He came not as a domineering and abusive king, but as a good lord and a gentle shepherd. And then you turn to the New Testament, right? Let's turn to the New Testament, and we see Jesus who exemplifies this and intensifies this theme. Where Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. This Jesus, who descended gently into our world in Bethlehem, grew in wisdom and stature in Nazareth, taught with toughness and tenderness in Galilee, and rode into Jerusalem, humble and mounted on a donkey. And then Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. But here is where it intensifies to the point of ridiculousness and apparent foolishness. He says... The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Wait, wait, what? The, the good farmer lays down his life for the cow? The, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep? What, what? We can understand that an emperor could use his power to choose to pardon. We can, we can get behind that. We can wrap our heads around that kind of mercy but to lay down his own life for us? In 1 Peter 2.23, it says this of Jesus, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Not because he was weak or powerless, but because he was powerful enough to be gentleness himself. Jesus, as a ransom for many, this is the power that he chooses to use. And to be honest, if it weren't for the resurrection, if it wasn't for the resurrection, we in fact would look back on the cross and we would see it and we would scoff at it and we would, we would not understand it because with the resurrection, now we see the cross not as weakness, folly, foolishness as the world would see it, but as total beautiful, righteous power, a power's ultimate use and purpose being revealed as sacrificial love. This power, this God, is who Isaiah is declaring, behold your God, here is your God, Jesus, who left heaven and walked with us through the snowstorm of our lives and he went up to the cross with his arms out in a mighty embrace of the entire world his back to the storm of the cross who for the joy set before him endured the cross for the love of his people the love of his kids endured all of its scorn and its shame and here we see that second paradox that Marianne mentioned that the good shepherd is also the sacrificial lamb that when that day ended Jesus breathed his last breath the sacrificial lamb paid sacrificial lamb paid the world's great debt Jesus died for you Jesus taking upon himself that which we deserve we have been redeemed with a price we have been rescued And God's true power revealed not in the shape of a fist, but in the shape of a cross. We have an opportunity in front of us. Um, I have an opportunity. You have an opportunity in front of you to receive and seek to imitate the humility and gentleness of Christ. If you've not received God's gift of salvation, then I invite you, I invite you to surrender your life to Jesus. Ask him to come into your life now in this moment. 1 John 1 says that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, however, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And then later in Romans 10 chapter, our verse 9 He says this, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. So to some of you, hear the invitation of our mighty, gentle God. Repent and believe. And for all of us, all of us, let the picture of Isaiah that Isaiah paints encourage your heart step out of fretting and anxious attempts to do all of the protecting, all of the saving, all of the rescuing and to entrust those you care for most into the arms of a great and mighty God that does not use a fist but uses arms to embrace. I think there's some parents here that need to hear that let God be father, let him love your kids. Get take take yourself out of that high level of pressure and surrender to him and allow God to care for your lambs. He cares deeply, so deeply for your people, for your kids. And this same God gives us his power and strength to serve the flock, not subjugating it, he gives his people influence and authority to steward without being protective of it or becoming jealous when he gives more power to others than to ourselves. For those of us who have felt and known the power of God's forgiveness and salvation, we have a call to imitate Christ, to let his strength who freed us from our need to flex The call of those of us and all of us who have power is to use it sacrificially. We have a call to embrace the shape of the cross and not the fist. And as we imitate Christ, may we not fear to go and proclaim his good news. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up and do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Let me pray. Father, Heavenly Father, you have arms of power You have authority and you take that authority and it's in the shape of a cross. Father, you have rewritten the definition of how we use power. In a world that constantly seeks to use it for our own gain, you gave it all away. You poured yourself out until you were nothing so that the world could be saved and so that the world could know your Son Heavenly Father, those of us who know this and know you and know the power of your redemption, your resurrection, and your life, may we give to this world of our power. May we give sacrificially. And Lord, I just ask that you would speak to the hearts of those who have never surrendered to you. Lord, speak and whisper that you care, that if they confess, if they give their lives to you, that you will embrace them. Lord, it's so easy to think of you as someone with a fist, with a stiff arm that pushes people away. But we see so clearly throughout Scripture and in the person of Jesus through his death and his resurrection that that is not how you behave. Lord, thank you that you care for us. Thank you that you, that you care for those that are close to us, that are dear to our hearts. Lord, in this season, we trust you. Give us this, the courage to proclaim, here is your God. Behold our God, the one who has power and uses it in gentleness. Amen. Friends, thank you for joining us here at Renfrew Baptist Church. Go in peace and go with God's gentleness. Amen.